You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you this morning and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to continue to teach us as you have been so gracious to us, O oh, Father, as we've looked at this portion of your word, which uh, perhaps is not as well known as other portions. O oh, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the, the many blessings we've received from this study. And Father, we look to you this morning that these blessings may continue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Over the last few weeks, we have been considering the life and reign of King Asa. And sometimes you read these stories and you think, okay, what are we, we going to do with this? How does this uh, apply to our lives today? Well, I, I will confess this morning, having been meditating on these verses now for uh, many weeks, that I, I have, I don't know, maybe 4,000 words of notes right here. And, um, and it doesn't even begin to... Uh, plunge the depths of the lessons and the uh, blessings that are in these verses. I'm going to stick really closely with this this morning so that I don't digress much and like dump a big truckload of stuff on you this morning. But um, these studies, as you can tell, if you've been following these studies, they're, they're very profitable things to do. And over the last few weeks, we've been considering the life and reign of King Asa. And so far, Asa has been really a remarkable king, has he not? Um, it's been remarkable. I mean, he's led the nation of Judah into a number of, of uh, not only godly, but very healthy reforms. And, um, but the old adage that, that things that start well do not necessarily end well uh, certainly applies here, as we're going to see this morning. Asa's reign, though it started out so strong, and though it started out so uh, courageous, and faithful, uh, it ends in disaster. And my goal this morning really is to draw a few lessons from this disaster so that the Holy Spirit uh, may uh, be pleased to leave us with a graphic illustration in our minds uh, so that uh, we may not follow the path of us. Now, before we get into chapter 16, of course, chapter 16 has a context um, let's back up a little bit to chapter 15. And over the last two weeks, we've really largely centered in chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. And in verse 1, we're introduced to the prophet Azariah. And Azariah is empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare a word to King Asa. If you look at verse 2, uh, Azariah begins to speak to uh, speak the word to Asa. He says, hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. So uh, one of the things I've drawn out here is, is that Azariah is not just speaking to Asa, but he's speaking to the people of Judah, the people of Benjamin. Uh, so he's speaking to all of the people in the southern kingdom. He says, the Lord is with you while you were with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And as we have seen over the last few weeks, Asa has really so far been a remarkable king. Um, he, you know, in chapter 14, we saw that he leads his army up against a one million man strong army. And how does he do that? He does that uh, by faithfully putting his faith and his trust in the Lord, which is a remarkable uh, remarkable faith is demonstrated by him in that chapter. And in verse 2, Asa receives assurance from the Lord. Uh, you know, Azariah comes to him, he says, the Lord is with you, Asa. The Lord is with you, people of Judah. The Lord is with you, people of Benjamin. If you seek him, he will be found by you. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. And if you look down to verse 7, Azariah concludes saying, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. Now, how does Asa react to the prophet? 
Well, in, in, we're told in verse 8, as soon as he hears the words of Asa, the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, he took courage, and he begins to lead in more reforms, doesn't he? Put away, he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. Now, these, it's easy to read these sentences and just keep moving on, but it would have taken a tremendous amount of courage to implement these reforms. It's like it always does. Uh, because idols aren't things that we hold out here all nice and loose. Um, idols are things that we hold very dear uh, to our heart. And this is, the, this is the case with many of the assignments the Lord gives us, isn't it? Uh, you, you ever notice that many of those assignments, they're just not real easy assignments? Like sharing the gospel at the workplace? That's not always easy to do. Or I think what even in many cases is harder than that is sharing the gospel in your own household with your own family. That can be very, very difficult. I mean, your family knows you better than anybody knows you. They know your shortcomings. They know your pitfalls. They know your, they know your sin. So sharing the gospel is certainly not easy. None of these things are easy. In fact, the right, doing the right thing is generally the hard thing to do. But look at the encouragement that the Lord gives to Asa. He says, take courage. That's verse 7. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And someone might say, well, if we had that kind of encouragement today. Well, we do have that kind of encouragement today. You know, and you don't need to turn there, but just listen to these verses, these famous verses from Matthew 28. Verse 19, Go where Jesus commissions his church and says, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then Jesus adds these beautiful, and I might add strengthening words. He says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world or even to the end of the age. Jesus promises, I am with you always, always. So just as Asa drew from this encouragement, may we draw from this encouragement as well. And this is what we find Asa doing. Back to verse 8. Asa continues this courageous reform, if you will. He removes the detestable idols. And do you catch that? Um, most translations, well, the King James would be abominable idols. Uh, ESV, detestable idols. Notice just doesn't just say idols. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses a word that that's, can be brought into English this way, that these idols are sacrilegious objects causing the desecration of the place. Sacrilegious objects causing the desecration of the place. So we have detestable things, abominable things, sacrilegious things. And I draw this to your attention because the first step in overcoming our idols is to view our idols properly, to see our idols for what they are. Um, why, why are they our idols? They're our idols because we love them. Part of being free from them is seeing them for what they actually are. Um, in God's sight, they're detestable. They're sacrilegious. They're abominable. Uh, so this is the first step in getting rid of them. And when God's people get real serious about following him, something very beautiful happens. Look at verse 9, chapter 15, verse 9. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with him. For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Did you catch what's going on in that verse? People are, people are coming from the northern kingdom. And they're coming down into the southern kingdom. There's a large migration of people that are coming into Judah. And why are these people coming into Judah? It's because they could see with their eyes that God was with them. And that is a principle that we really would do well to pay attention to. 
is because when people can see that God is with a certain community, there's a magnetism that overcomes that community, which draws other people, people that you might not even expect to come and be part of that community. And with a shadow of a doubt, there's, there's, there can be little doubt that one of the reasons that people are not flocking into churches today is because of the crass idolatry that exists in the contemporary church today. You know, um, this should grieve us. It should grieve us because it grieves our Lord. And may verse 9 be an encouragement to you. I mean, when us of Judah and Benjamin stripped the land of their of their idols, people came in droves after that took place. And, and then we, we, we get to a place in chapter 15 where we see a really happy time. You know, in verse 12, I mentioned, we, we spent some time in verses 12 and 13 last week. Uh, I, I just mentioned it. You know, they renew their covenant. Um, and there's a renewed sense of awe and enjoyment in the Lord. And this sounds amazing. As you read that passage of Scripture, it's just, it sounds amazing, and it should motivate us to faithfulness. But let us remember that this kind of thing is very costly. If you look at verse 16, uh, we, we really see the cost of this in verse 16. E even Maacah, and I, you know, some of this is hard because these, you come to names like that and you think, how in the world do I say Maacah, you know? How do I say Maacah, you know? Uh, even Maacah, us as mom, was removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kedron. Now, that, now that wouldn't be no easy task. And you have to commend Asa here because it's one thing to go out through the land and strip the land out there of all the idols, but here we see Asa was committed to stripping the land or stripping his household uh, of all of its idols as well. It's so much easier to, to, to look and say, hey, all you guys need to get rid of your idols. And for me to be, you know, clutching onto them and enjoying them all along. But this is not the case with us, is it? And how easy would it be to dethrone your mom? I mean, I read a verse like this, and the first thought I think of is, what was Thanksgiving dinner like after that? <laughs> I bet that made for an awkward Christmas. You, you get my drift here? The, the whole point here is that this is costly. It's costly. Um, and, um, you know, we come to verse 17, and we're reminded of something else. If you look at verse 17 there, the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. Um, here we learn that no matter how hard we try to get rid of all of our idols, there's still going to be rem a remnant of them left behind. Um, and even among those hearts who are wholly true, notice that word wholly true, that Asa's heart was wholly true those days. How are we to understand that? Uh, well, we understand that is not to teach perfection. Asa, as we're going to see, is not perfect. Of course, he's not perfect, but he's sincere. He is sincere. And it's the same sediment that is being expressed with the word blameless as we encounter it. The word blameless. Uh, you know, you, you, where it'll mention that some uh, uh, biblical person is blameless. Does that mean that they're does that mean that they're perfect? No. Uh, but what it means is that they're upright. It means that they're sincere. And that's how we're to take uh, this particular passage as well. And this brings us to chapter 16. Um, the peace that's enjoyed under us as reforms are broken. Uh, when um, verse 1, Baasha, king of Israel, went up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might permit no one to go out or to come in to us, a king of Judah. Um, unfortunately, one of the poisonous results of Rehoboam, who would have been Asa's grandfather and Solomon's son, one of the unfortunate results of that division where Israel is now divided between ten 
kingdoms, there are ten tribes, if you will, in the north and two in the south, and you have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. One of the poisonous fruits of that is they were constantly fighting back and forth. And uh, here we have, here we see that uh, um, uh, Israel now is mounting a siege uh, against Judah, uh, if you will. Uh, they're trying to stop traffic from going from the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom. Undoubtedly, the migration of all these people coming into Judah was probably exacerbating that, aggravating that, if you will. And um, uh, if you look at verse 2, you, this is where things begin to go really, really wrong. Asa took silver and gold from the treasures of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who lived in Damascus, saying, verse 3, there's a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I am sending to you silver and gold. Go break your covenant with Baasha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. Now, this should really sink our hearts as we come to this because us as actions here look really different, don't they? Than they did, for example, when he was standing up against the one million strong army. And there, Asa leaned wholeheartedly on the Lord. But in regards to Baasha, I mean, he's doing exactly the opposite. He basically calls up Ben-Hadad and says, you know, hey, um, that covenant you got going on with Israel, I want you to break it. And uh, uh, to bribe him, he even raids the temple for much of the bribe money, doesn't he? So in, in us, his reasoning is simple enough. Here he's got... He's got Israel on his, on his northern boundary there, on his northern border. They're setting up a siege. They're bringing in all these costly stones and costly timbers and what have you. And they're building, they're building this siege, if you will. And Asa is like, you know what? If I can get Ben-Hadad to attack them, he's, gonna, he's in Syria, so he's going to come in from the north. He's going to attack them from the north. Well, what's that going to force Baasha to do? He's going to have to stop his siege against Jerusalem, stop what he's doing, gather all his people, go up north, and defend his kingdom. That's, that's what Asa was up to. And then Asa's, Asa's thinking is then we can go and grab all the goodies, all these building materials, and we can use it to uh, build some cities. And the thing about it is it worked. If you look at verse 4 and following, you see it worked. And Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his army against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Aijah and Dan, Abel, Maim, and the store cities of Naphtali. And when Baasha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah and let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had been building and with them he built Geba and Mitzpah. Well, it seems like all is well, doesn't it? It's time for a victory lap or a victory celebration. Everything is going well until Asa is visited by a second prophet. He gets a visit by another prophet in verse 7, and this visit isn't so favorable. If you look at verse 7, at that time Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You have done foolishly in this, for from now on you will have wars. Now, on the surface, all seems pretty good, don't it? It seems as though a huge blessing has been given to Israel. And, um, I mean, or given to Judah, rather, because Israel runs north and they're defending their country up north. Here's all these building materials, stones, timbers. Now they're in a building campaign that they didn't have to provide the materials for. Two cities are being built. But then comes the prophet of God, and he speaks a word to us, and he says, listen, you've done foolishly in this. You've done foolishly in this. And, and you can almost hear somebody coming along and saying, hey, uh, Han and I, you know, um, don't be such a buzzkill. 
I mean, look, look at all of the good that's come out of this. What do you have to be down on King Usa for? I mean, it was brilliant what he did. I mean, after all, it worked perfectly, didn't it? It worked perfectly. Well, on the surface, it appears that everything's a blessing, doesn't it? But the Lord's angered, and Hanani communicates the Lord's displeasure to Asa. How does Asa react? That's verse 10. Asa was angry with the seer and put him in the stocks in prison, for he was in a rage because of this. And then Asa begins to treat some of his own people cruelly, doesn't he? And how does it fare with Asa? Three years later, verse 12 tells us that Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord but sought help from physicians. Let me, let me add on the side right there because we, we could misstep right there. Someone could read those verses and say, okay, is it unfaithful to go to a doctor? No, no, um, it's not unfaithful to go to a doctor. But it is unfaithful to put all your trust in men and women. That's what us is being rebuked for. Um, someone could misstep there and say, you know, if I go to a doctor, I'm being unfaithful. I should just trust in the Lord to heal me. No, that no. Um, we trust in the Lord to heal us. Yes, uh, He can work through physicians to do it. Does that make sense? Uh, sometimes people will misstep right there. People who really want to be you know, really truly want to be faithful to the Lord, uh, can misstep there. Now, I've been making some application all along as we go, but I got part, I got like pieces scattered out all over the place. So let's see if we can start rounding some of these up and put something together that looks like something. Um, you know, the, the first, the first point of application I want to leave you with, and I would like you to remember is this, just because a plan works, doesn't mean it has God's blessing. Just because a plan works doesn't mean God's pleased. And this is, this is an important rebuke to 21st century American pragmatism. Mm-hmm. A couple of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, some of us might be 21st century, let me, let me put it another way, 21st century evangelical pragmatism. Let me put it that way. Some of us say, well, what is that? Well, that's the idea that results are more important than faithfulness. Or that measurable fruit is more important than humble obedience. Does that make sense? You know, on Friday I was thinking through this. I was thinking through, how am I going to illustrate this, you know? And uh, <laughs> I, I debated whether to share all this with you or not. Um, but I had forgotten about a really embarrassing story that happened to me a number of years ago. And uh, I, I think it illustrates this so, so well. It happened right across the river in a little coffee shop in East Liverpool. And I'm trying to, I can't believe I forgot about this, but I had actually forgot completely about this. I don't know how. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking it was in 2009 because we started in 2008. And I know it was the Saturday before Easter Sunday that year. So I'm thinking it was 2009. But we had a group gathered together uh, in this coffee shop over in East Liverpool, and I spoke on the resurrection at that little get-together. And it was, I'm, I'm going to tell you, it was, it was one of probably the biggest flop of any talk I've ever given in public, ever, period. I mean, it was an enormous flop. I mean... There were people getting up and leaving as I was speaking with angry faces. Um, and I remember really being discouraged by that. And a couple of weeks, it was probably a couple of months later, I went, I had to be down in the Carolinas. I don't remember if it was North Carolina or South Carolina, but I had to be down there for something. And, 
And when I was down there, I bumped into a man that I knew had had a lot of church planning experience. And I got an opportunity to speak with him. And I told him, I, you know, I said, you know, I gave this talk and, you know, at this little coffee shop. And, and I, I got to say, it, it was the biggest flop, I think, that I've ever experienced. Um, and when you, when you start planning churches, there's an enormous amount of, I can't tell you how much pressure is on you. A lot of very faithful people put a lot of money into this, and the last thing you want to do is blow it. You follow me? I wanted to be a good steward of all of the money that people would put up to put into this. So that meant that I wanted to be able to communicate with our culture. And I'm, I'm kind of pouring out on this man's shoulder. I'm explaining to him, you know, this flopped. And he said to me, he says, well, what was the subject of your talk? And I said, well... It was a Saturday before Sunday, so I thought, what could be more relevant than the resurrection? Does that seem, does that seem reasonable? Um, I said it was the resurrection. He goes, oh, okay, well, that explains it. He goes, I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have talked about the resurrection. That response comforted me, but not in a way that you might think. It comforted me, but not in a way that you might think. Let me, let me explain. I was bewildered by that answer, actually. I was very bewildered by that answer. I mean, it's the day before Easter. Why not talk about the resurrection? But then I answered my own question. I answered my own question. You see, if Rick, if you want to be popular, and you want people to like you, and you want to draw and keep a big crowd, then clearly... That's good advice. That's great advice. And don't get me wrong, I was under a lot of pressure back then. I don't feel that now, but I felt that then. And I never, we, we weren't trying to build a big church, but we knew we, we knew we had to get enough action going for a church to be able to sustain itself. But I asked myself this question, Rick, what is your goal? Is it to be popular? Is it to be liked? Is it to draw a crowd? And the answer is no. No and no. My goal is the glory of Christ. And where, where is Christ more glorified than in his resurrection? Maybe his ascension. But I don't remember much about, I do remember some details about the talk, but maybe I ought to leave those alone uh, and leave that in the past. But I'm sure I probably said a few sentences about the ascension. I usually do when I'm talking about the resurrection in that kind of context, where Jesus is invested with unlimited authority, and he, he is the subject of heaven and the angels. And what could be more glorifying to, to Christ than that, than that subject? What could possibly be more glorifying to him than that? And when I say I wanted to be able to speak to our culture, when I, was, when, I, when I was relaying to this man, I want to be able to communicate to our culture, I didn't mean I want to be able to write messages that people are going to like. I didn't want to write messages that people are, that are going to make me popular. I wanted to write messages that would be glorifying to God and find a way to communicate this to our culture. So, I think the resurrection... Resurrection is glorifying to Christ. Now, let me take this a step further. The reaction of people to the message that day and every day ever since is not my business, is it? Sometimes we begin to think that that's our business, how people react to the gospel. I've grown a good bit from that since then. One thing I recognize is a person's reaction and response to the gospel is not my business. Now, someone will say, well, can you demonstrate that from Scripture? Easily. Thanks for asking. I was wanting to get to that. Noah preached for over 100 years, didn't he? How many converts got on his boat? 
There weren't very many. In fact, there weren't any. But the Lord was glorified every time he preached. Oftentimes, his preaching was probably laying another timber on top of the, on the, of the bow. What's this crazy old man doing out in this field? Or how about Hananiah in our text here? How about Hananiah's talk with King Asa? Was that a flop? Hey, listen, when I left the coffee shop back in 2009, I left as a free man. Just embarrassed, discouraged man, but I wasn't in handcuffs. Hananiah, when he left his talk with Asa, was incarcerated. Now, how, would I, how does... How does how does 21st century evangelical pragmatism handle that? If, if this is all about results, what do we do with that? Is that a flop? Well, the best example is the example of our Lord in John chapter 6. And if you're not familiar with John chapter 6, write it down in your bulletin and read it this afternoon because when you get towards the end of John chapter 6, you're going to find out that Jesus, in response to his gospel talk that day, so many disciples left following him that he looked at the 12 and said, how about you guys? You guys want to go too? Now, what are we going to conclude today? That Jesus flopped that day with his gospel talk? Paul uses a phrase in Romans. It's a strong phrase, meganoita, strong phrase. It's translated in many translations as God forbid. God forbid. Or we might say perish that thought. Is it possible for Christ to have flopped in his gospel talk? Absolutely not. But 21st century evangelical pragmatism says, no, I mean, if people are walking out on you, you speak, something's a flop, something's wrong. Because it evaluates everything by what appears to be measurable results. How many people were there? How many decisions did you get? How much money was collected? Well, in the course of the same talk down south with this gentleman... I was told by him in that conversation that we had as I was telling him about my talk in East Liverpool, I was told in this, I was told in the course of this conversation, he said, listen, events are what builds churches. This is what he told me. Because you want to build a church, events are what builds churches. This is what he said. Events build churches. Um, it, you know, it's true. If you throw an event, and this has been my observation about events, if you throw an event, and it's an event that people are going to be interested in and people like, you will get a crowd there. But here is the thing. What is going to be the center of attention of this event? Is it going to be Christ crucified? Is it going to be the resurrection? The crucifixion? The ascension? What's it going to be? Is it going to be any of those things? Well, some will say, well, no, not exactly, but there's a big crowd. Okay, there's a big crowd, but what did you accomplish with your big crowd? You know, just like Asa, we see this activity, and on the surface it looks like things are going well with Asa, doesn't it? I mean, what he set to accomplish, he wanted to get Israel off his borders. That worked. He got a, a bunch of goodies out of the deal to fix up Mitzpah and Giba. That worked. Now Israel's up north and they got their hands full with Ben-Hadad. That worked. It's really been blessed, but really has it? Was it really blessed? Has it been blessed? We got to be clear about our orders. Jesus commissioned his church to preach the gospel. That's what we've been commissioned to do. And to teach all that he has commanded. These are our, this is our assignment. Now, I want to say that I'm not against events. Events are wonderful from time to time. 
But what I'm speaking to is this pragmatic event-driven ministry that just goes from one event to another, to another, to another, to another. Events may draw crowds, but events cannot build the church. Events will not build the church. Let me say that again. Events will not build the church. That's false. It's the gospel and the gospel alone that will build the church. The event must be the gospel. If you want to throw an event, here's a, here, in my mind, this is the way to throw an event. When you're getting your hair cut and you get the opportunity to share the gospel with the person who's cutting your hair, there's an event. That's an event. Or if you're at the coffee pot at work and you suddenly get this opportunity where God gives you this opportunity to share the gospel, and it's just naturally flowing. If you're in the business of sharing the gospel, you know what I'm talking about. It just comes out and it's flowing and it's wonderful and it's marvelous. And you usually, first thing you do is run and tell somebody about it, isn't it? Because it's so wonderful. That is an event. That is an event. In fact, that event may go south on you. It may go south. And if you share the gospel much, you know what I'm talking about. You may be over at the coffee shop in 2009 sharing about the resurrection and everybody leave on you. That's pretty south. But let the Lord use that event in someone's heart and in someone's soul. Maybe six months from now. Maybe six weeks from now. Maybe six years from now. And let him open up their eyes and convert their heart. And you want to know something? That will be the event of their life. And it'll be a major event in yours as well if word gets back to you. I've experienced that. Where I thought things were going so south only to find out a few years later that someone came. To, this happens at funerals and stuff. Where nobody wants to hear about the gospel. They want you to shut up as fast as you can. Or weddings. But six months later or six years later, you get word that someone was sitting there and they didn't want to listen to you, but the Lord caused what you said to reverberate in their hearts. And wouldn't leave them alone until finally they come to saving faith. Now they're so happy. The person that spits on you today may be the same person who cries on your shoulder tomorrow and thanks you for loving them so much that you are willing to share the gospel with them. That's the event. That is the event. From a purely pragmatic perspective, Asa's plan worked, but that plan was disobedient, unfaithful, and offensive to the Lord. But listen, just because something works doesn't mean God's in it, does it? The gospel works, everybody. God will do what God will do when you share the gospel, and it will work every time. I'm not saying that someone's going to come to faith every time, but what I'm saying is God's purpose will work every time. He'll be glorified regardless of how they respond. Secondly, we're out of our minds if we would prefer a heathen over the Lord. This is what Asa does, isn't it? Asa gave preference to a heathen king over, over the Lord. He put his faith in a bribable heathen king over the Lord. I mean, with some gold, Asa very easily leads Ben-Hadad to attack Israel and break his covenant with them. So what is Asa doing? Well, he's it's doing lots of things, but he's, well, I'll share two things he's doing. With. He's leading, he's leading Ben-Hadad to sin and breaking his covenant, Right? But secondly, if Ben-Hadad will break his covenant with Israel, that's just an absolute fool to think that Ben-Hadad won't break his covenant with Asa. It's already been established in a little gold, and he's a covenant breaker. So the next person who offers the gold is going to get 
king for hire, isn't he? Now, it's easy to pick on what us has done here, but aren't we doing the same thing when we rely on man-made methods instead of relying on the Lord? Aren't we doing the same thing? If we're going to rely on man-made methods in order to build the church, in order to share the gospel, if we're going to rely on man-made methods, aren't we doing the same thing? Exactly the same thing? Where we're going to, we're going to look to the devices of man instead of look to the Lord? Read the Reformers. How did those great churches get built? It was simple. It was simple. It was done on the knees. And it was done by preaching the gospel. It was prayer and proclamation. That's how the gospel got, that's how the, that's how the church got built. You know, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2, he says, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, what's Paul saying? Well, he's saying we refuse to practice cunning or, tam cunning or tamper with God's word. Okay, is Paul, would Paul ever be about watering the gospel down? No, because he says that um, we refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It was an open statement of the truth. It wasn't these bait-and-switch tactics that are so popular. Nor was the Apostle Paul cloaking the gospel behind some kind of fun event. We've studied Acts all the way through chapter 18, almost all the way through chapter 18. We've studied Acts all the way through Paul's first and second missionary journey. So we've seen a lot of preaching in our study of Acts. That is on Wednesday nights, right? Those of you who have been with us on Wednesday nights. What's Paul do? He goes in, when he goes into the synagogues and when he goes into these places, what's he do? An open statement of the truth. He gets to the truth. He gets right to the skinny. He talks about the gospel. He goes right to the gospel of Christ Jesus is what he does. That's what builds churches. That's what builds churches. Besides this, it's been well said. I don't know who said it first. I read it, I read it from, uh, I either read it or heard Mark Dever say it. That's where I got it from. But he says, what you win people with is what you're going to win them to. If we win people with entertainment, then listen, better be happy with being a promoter because that's what you're going to be from now on. You're going to be a constant promoter promoting entertainment. Otherwise, you're going to lose your base. You're going to lose everybody. And I'll use that kind of terminology because that kind of terminology starts coming in, all this Fortune 500 terminology. You're going to lose your base. Lose your base. Yeah, because they, they signed up for entertainment. That's how, you've, that's how you got them coming. How do you think you're going to keep them coming? What you win them with is what you win them to. I'll tell you what, if you win them with the gospel, when hearts are won with the gospel, guess what? Guess what? God's in it because God's done it. And it's not the work of men. It's the work of God. It's the work of God. Thirdly, never take your eyes off the Lord's resume. Never take your eyes off the Lord's resume. If you look back to verse 8, in his rebuke, Anani reminds us of the victory the Lord gave him earlier. In verse 8, he says, Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. That was a one million man strong army. And God gave him victory. And here's the thing. He would have certainly given us a victory over the Israelites. If he can handle one million Ethiopians and Libyans, certainly he can handle Baasha. But Asa had taken his eyes off the Lord's resume. He had taken his eyes off the Lord's perfect faithfulness and strength, and then all that was left was earthly maneuvers. That's simple enough. Fourthly, we're graphically apprised of the need to persevere, aren't we? 
Notice at the beginning how much I kept saying and repeating how strong and good Asa started out. You know, I was emphasizing that for a reason. Asa started out amazingly strong. I mean, he, he, he even dethroned his mother from being queen of Israel. How hard would that have been to do? Yet what happened? What happened? I mean, if you look back to chapter 14 and verse 11, I love this verse. I mean, this, this is a verse I've been meditating on quite a bit, actually, and using in my own prayer life. These are the, this is Asa. Chapter 14, verse 11. And he's facing this one million man army. We had this as a scripture memory verse a couple weeks ago. How's he face this one million man army? He prays to the Lord and he says, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. In other words, whether we are many or we, were, or we have a whole bunch, it makes no difference because it's nothing with you to help. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against thee. What happened? Asa. To, 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 to be going so strong. Could it even have been imaginable to anybody who knew him at the time, or even himself at the time, that he would end the way that he ended? What happened? The backsliding usually happens very gradually. It happens very gradually. A little laxity here, a little laxity there, and before you know it, you're not reading your Bible much anymore. Prayer becomes a chore. And then you're starting to think of something else you'd rather do on Sunday morning. And if it's left unchecked, well, you know what happens. You know how the rest goes. Isaac gives us a clear example very graphic example of the need for constant perseverance and constant watchfulness, doesn't he? Because if this can happen to us, uh, none of us have stood up against the one million man army. That would be terrifying. 250 men army with swords and javelins, chariots. That'd be terrifying. One million? It'd be uncountable. Look, look what happened. Jesus says, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. I read it from the King James this morning because that's how I memorized it. That leaves a lasting impression, doesn't it? If your eye offend thee, pluck it out. What? Yeah, if your eye offend thee, pluck it out. Now, of course, the context, the context as we read earlier in our service, the context of that statement is lust. But there's a principle in that statement that Jesus is making very graphically, and one that's very hard to forget once you understand it, is he's saying, listen, make a decisive and an immediate break with sin. Don't flirt with it. Don't toy with it. Don't play with it. Because if you do, you'll never control it. It will control you. If the eye offend thee, Pluck it out. Let nothing stand in the way of your relationship with Christ. If you're sitting here this morning right now and you got something that's messing up your walk with the Lord, deal with it now, right now. When we close in prayer, take that matter up and don't let God go until he blesses you in that matter because you will not control it tomorrow. You will not control it the next day. Deal with it now. And may Asa be an example. Look what happened to Asa. Don't think that that can't happen to us. I believe in the doctrine of eternal security with all my heart and soul. I also believe that you can backslide and make shipwreck out of your faith with all my heart and soul. We can't tell the difference between backsliding and apostasy. We don't know the, we don't know the difference because we can't read the hearts. There's only one way to really know the difference. It's when in the end, if a person comes back to the Lord or not. You see, if they never return back to the Lord, then it was apostasy. If they come back to the Lord, then it was backsliding. Because John says, listen, they went out from us, but we know that they were never really of us because they went out from us. But the fact is, when you're spiraling down, you don't know what it is. 
because you're going to lose all your sense of assurance and everything's all going to be spiraling down. Don't do it. Don't go there. Look at Asa. Don't go there. Don't do it. My final point's the best. And you know, I never like to leave on these like nasty endings. I like to always leave on a, on a blessed ending. I saved the very best for last. Here's the best. While Asa was a good king, he compromised himself in his later years, right? And this cost his kingdom lots of suffering and bloodshed because the judgment is now you're going to have wars. That's what, that's what Hanani says to Asa. Now you're going to have wars. What's that mean for the kingdom? They're going to be fighting. It means bloodshed. It means loss. It means mourning. It means grief. It means economic oppression. Because the, the life of the people is tied and interconnected with the king. Someone say, you said this was a good, a good ending. <laughs> it is a good ending. While Asa was a good king, he compromised himself in his later years. And in doing so, he cost his kingdom a lot of suffering and bloodshed. But Christ, our king, never compromised himself. And the life of the people is tied with the life of the king. In terms of his earthly temptation, Jesus, in terms of his manhood, his humanhood, his greatest temptation was undoubtedly the Garden of Gethsemane. When there on the night that he would be betrayed, he says to the Father, he says, listen, if there's another way here, I'm all ears. But then he says... Oh, my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And Jesus went, he plowed forward, underwent the humiliation and agony of the cross, and he did it to save your soul and to save my soul. And he did it perfectly, and he did it uncompromisingly. And our livelihoods and our welfare and our future and everything is tied in with that perfection. And I think that's a good note to end on. What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much more that could be shared in this text. But, oh, Father, we so thank you for what we've gleaned. We so thank you, Father, that you've blessed us this morning. We so thank you, Father, that, Lord, we have a king who is perfect in every way. We so thank you that you've given us instruction that we, could, that we could reset and we could say, you know, just because a plan seems to be working doesn't mean that it has your blessing. You have caused us to look to your resume this morning and see your perfect strength and faithfulness. You've caused us to, to look again to see how we plant churches and how we share the gospel. You've caused us again to see the importance of a humble obedience before you and to see the purpose and importance of faithfulness and walking with you in obedience. Oh, Father, we thank you. And, and Lord, you've empowered us this morning to walk in that faithfulness and obedience by your grace, your wonderful grace, that you lead the way in perfect and humble obedience, giving your life in our place and suffering the wrath in our stead that we may have life. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.